There's nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, aneconomyofone.com. Aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, Economy of One on Facebook. Got an interesting show for you today. I want to stick to a theme of essentially liberty and the Constitution and throw in a little bit of economics here, but should be a lot of fun. Trevor Burris, he's a research fellow in the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies, will be joining me uh, a little bit later. You know, um, being Pearl Harbor week, uh, December 7th, 1941, 75th anniversary of uh, Pearl Harbor. It got me thinking about what we have in this country. And I'm not old enough to uh, remember World War II. I wasn't born until in the 50s, so uh, that was a little before my time. But my dad was, and and, uh, my uncles served in World War II. And and, uh, I remember a lot of the stories. It really focuses on liberty in this country and around the world. The United States has been the beacon for liberty for a long, long time. Maybe, one could say, the only beacon for liberty. And I think it's important that we reflect on this from time to time because liberty, economic liberty, comes into every aspect of our lives. Only liberty is consistent with not killing and not stealing. Only liberty accords everyone uniform respect for the same inalienable rights. Only liberty prevents some from ruling over others, prevents sacrificing those others to those in power. Only liberty is consistent with peace between individuals and society. Only liberty allows moral and ethical development and improvement, increasing our integrity and generosity because we cannot improve without the freedom to make our own choices. I think we need to look at this in light of all the stuff we've been hearing since the election. When did you hear the phrase fake news? You didn't hear that until after the election. And the media is out there, the progressives are out there, and they're all saying fake news, fake news, fake news. Well, you and I both know what they mean. What they're calling fake news is what we call freedom of speech. Now, does that mean there's not fake news out there? Of course there is. 
There's been fake news ever since there's been more than one person on this planet talking to somebody else. Propaganda is fake news. I guess what bothers me is the media, the politicians, all these people don't understand that you and I have enough intelligence to discern what's real and what's not. And if you don't have the intelligence to discern what's real and what's not, doesn't really matter what's real and what's not. Liberty is critical to our future, and that's what's coming out of this election from the losers is we got too much liberty. On an economic liberty front, only economic liberty, free markets in other words, allows the use of productive knowledge that no person or group in power can make use of. If you have economic liberty, if you have free markets, then you are free to exchange. You're free to bargain with someone else without coercion. Only economic liberty enables the greatest degree of creativity and productive discovery by allowing anyone to offer others new and improved options. Think of the economy being run by bureaucrats. Think of the government establishing prices. Think of the government telling someone or a company, you need to improve this product. I mean, that's the problem with socialism, is state-run businesses, they're not price-sensitive, they're not creative at all, they produce nothing. Only economic liberty guarantees arrangements that are mutually acceptable to those involved rather than coercive imposition by those who are more powerful. Think of what's happened in the last couple of years with the government stepping into businesses. Now, it's masked under prejudice or racism where, for example, we saw a bakery that didn't want to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple. Liberty allows that business to decide who they want to do business with. And it doesn't matter the reasons. Now, for those of you who listened to me for a while, if I owned a bakery and a gay couple came in and wanted a cake, I'd sell them a cake. I'm in business to sell stuff. I don't care who's gay and who's not and, and uh, what they do. It's part of my libertarian bent. No one has given me the authority to judge anybody else. But I understand and respect the right of businesses to do business with whom they want to do business or not do business with whom they don't want to do business. We can't have economic liberty if the government is telling you who you must do business with at what price. Only economic liberty induces the greatest incentives for people to do for others, even when they don't know them or like them. That's economic liberty. Only economic liberty allows adjustments to change without coercion 
or nasty political battles for control. If we want our economy to grow, it's only economic liberty that gives us the maximum potential for that growth. We've got historical precedent for this. Over and over and over, when we've seen massive growth, it's because people are free to produce and create and change. Now, with that comes what some economists call creative destruction. If you improve a product, you're destroying another product. Oftentimes, people want to save industries, save products for whatever reason, nostalgia, jobs, but in a truly economic liberty market, a free market, things will get destroyed and replaced. If it was up to the government, we'd all still be riding horses and wagons because we wouldn't want to put that industry out of business with automobiles. So liberty is everything. From an economic standpoint, if you have no liberty, you have no economics. You give up all your rights at the point of a gun. If somebody sticks a gun to your head, you no longer have the freedom to make a decision. Other than having them pull the trigger. Liberty offers each of us so many benefits that we cannot otherwise have. It deserves a strong conviction in its favor and justifies the extraordinarily high burden of proof before even considering any restriction of it. As I reflect on World War II, as I reflect on Pearl Harbor, I do get nostalgic. Now, that was way before my time. My earliest memory of war is Vietnam. And I was too young for that one, too. But it still boils down to liberty. And if it wasn't for the American liberty rights, the rest of the world would have nothing. Would have nothing. So... In looking at this and remembering Pearl Harbor, you know, we still have living history from Pearl Harbor. But in looking at this liberty and listening to people wanting to change the Constitution, wanting to get rid of the Electoral College, this is all an attack on our liberty. And it's critical that we be diligent and we be aware of what's really being attacked and what the cost is. Some of this stuff sounds like common sense, like, yeah, okay, no big deal. But everything is liberty. This fake news, propaganda, it's an attack on free speech. They feel you're too stupid to discern truth from lies. Up next... The recount goes on, but some interesting research out of uh, Stephen Moore and Art Laffer's latest publication. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, there was just a uh, report released by uh, Art Laffer and Stephen Moore and Jonathan Williams, and it's the 2016 edition of Rich States, Poor States. And it's very interesting, especially coming off the election, because all the states that strongly went to Hillary Clinton, what we call blue states, California, Massachusetts, Vermont, Hawaii, Maryland, New York, Illinois, New Jersey, Connecticut, all of those states, if you look at them over the last 10 years, they have a net loss of population of just under 3 million people, and that includes immigrants. If you look at the states that were the, uh, let's say, the, the reddest states, had the largest percentage going to Donald Trump, Wyoming, West Virginia, Oklahoma, Kentucky, Tennessee, those states, they had a net population gain over the last 10 years. The two largest conservative states by population, Florida and Texas, gained over 2 million residents at the same time California and New York lost 2 million residents. Now, why is this? Well, there's a lot of reasons for it, and it can't be the weather. I can see leaving New York for the weather, no problem there. But California, really? One of the most beautiful states in the Union, the weather is wonderful, but people are leaving. Why? Well, a lot of factors. One, probably one of the most, taxes. Those states have a state income tax of 13% or more. Texas and Florida, uh, no state income tax. Texas and Florida, right-to-work states. California and New York, forced union policies. California and New York, big environmental regulations. California, my goodness, you can't hardly sneeze in that state without a permit. Big differences. We're seeing that, and that takes time, and that's why the 10-year study is so important because you don't see much from a year-to-year basis. But over a 10-year period, it's a big deal. Now, why should people choose zero state income tax over 13% or more? I don't know. Selfish, greedy people. But that's reality. People are migrating. That's a demographic shift that will affect many future elections. Now, you know, and I know these these politicians in these states, they know that their high tax rates are killing growth. They know that people are leaving. New York State has spent millions and millions of dollars on TV ads across the country trying to convince people to move their businesses to uh, New York because it has low taxes. Right. New York has low taxes. That's like saying Chicago is crime-free. That's just not the case. Now, President-elect Trump promising on a national scale he's going to cut taxes and uh, deregulate and cut 
government spending. We saw his tweet this week and all the reaction around it about saying Boeing is charging way too much to replace Air Force One aircraft. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. I don't know. I don't know what one of those planes cost, and I don't know what an overrun is for uh, a plane equipped to fly the President of the United States around the world. Uh, that's got to be a awfully special plane. But it indicates to me that President-elect Trump, I believe, is going to be conscious of costs. You know, he's notorious for building his buildings on time and under budget. And if you've been in any of his buildings, you know they're not under budget because he cut corners and scrimped on quality. If anything, it's just the opposite. It's high, high quality. He gets the best in his buildings, and he gets it at a reasonable cost. You look at what we could have had with a President Clinton who's not concerned with cost, not concerned with, I mean, look at, look at President Obama. It came out this week. He spent $85 million on vacations for him and his family. Now, is that a lot? Uh, seems like a lot to me. $85 million in uh, vacations over eight years, that's $10 million a year on average, for vacations. Now, you're going to see the economic aspect going forward. The states that are more aggressive on taxes and regulation are the states that are going to get the business. And if Trump is going to uphold his campaign promises and lower taxes, you're going to see... That's starting to come true. You're going to start seeing where that has the biggest impact. Coming up next, Trevor Burris, a research fellow at Cato, is going to be joining me. Looking forward to talking to Trevor. I'll talk to him next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Trevor Burris. He's a research fellow in the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies and managing editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. His writings appear all over. He's in the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today, Forbes, Huffington Post, and the New York Daily News, among others. He lectures regularly on behalf of the Federalist Society the Institute for Humane Studies, and the Foundation for Economics Education. He's also the co-host of Free Thoughts, a weekly podcast you can find at libertarianism.org. Trevor, welcome to An Economy of One. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. You know, I've read a lot of your stuff, and on Tuesdays on the show, we kind of spend some time talking about the Constitution and how our liberties are being eroded, and just trying to get some of that historical background on that. And in reading some of your stuff, one of the uh, essays I came across spent a lot of time talking about the Anti-Federalists and how the Anti-Federalists were concerned 
and predicted kind of the situation we're in today with our liberty and political power out of Washington, that kind of stuff, gives you a little more uh, respect for uh, people 250 years ago in, in what they thought about our country, doesn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's 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 very easy to judge things in hindsight when you look back and you and especially the way we, we revere the Constitution and I think mm-hmm. that it's good that we revere the Constitution, but to look back and, and realize that when there was an actual debate over the Constitution and whether or not it would be ratified, there were people who are kind of you know, now they're considered the Pharisees of our modern political religion, but mm-hmm. there were people who said this is this constitution is going to create a extremely powerful government uh, that's going to be run by a group of elites. It's going to uh, create a government where the avaricious and the corrupt are trying to sort of war over our wealth. And it will sow discord amongst the people because it will be so far removed from the people. You were talking about 13 13 colonies in 18th century America. They had just fought a war against a very distant capital called London that that didn't represent their interests. But if you were living in Georgia at that time, uh, Washington, D.C., which hadn't yet been designated the capital, but whatever capital they were going to designate was going to be very far away. It was going to be very hard to have representation there. And so these these predictions, I think, are incredibly true. And I think it actually explains this crazy election year and what we went through uh, for how disconnected people feel from the from Washington, how much they think it is corrupt and full of sort of the worst people. Uh, both those things are things that anti-federalists predicted. You know, I, I just got done reading a book on James Madison and his role in the Constitution. And it it's interesting because a lot of these guys were, their primary focus was not only representation, but states' rights. I mean, they looked at each state as, you know, uh, I, I don't even know the word, just sacred sovereignty in each state. And a lot of the arguing, a lot of the discussion was around states' rights. And it seems like today that, once again, very prescient, the predictions they had have come true and chipping away at states' rights all over the place. The states really don't have as much power as, as the Constitution intended. Yeah. I think that uh, clearly, I, I don't think anyone who went to the Constitutional Convention or who signed the Constitution, uh, except for maybe Alexander Hamilton, but the, but that's even a little bit more nuanced. I don't think anyone would have endorsed the government that we actually got, and uh, and would have not. I don't think any of them would have predicted how far that this went off the rails. In particular. For example, the Anti-Federalists pointed out that the, the clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause, which uh, sort of expands the government's powers, they pointed out that that would be used, uh, especially in the form of taxation, to basically destroy the state governments. Uh, that didn't really happen. The, the, the clause that actually sort of destroyed uh, localism and created a national government is the Commerce Clause, right. uh, which is really interesting that no one talked about the Commerce Clause. I read... I've read every anti-federalist paper, and there and there are many more of those than there are of the federalist papers. There are thousands of them, thousand pages of them, and and I never saw anyone mention the Commerce Clause once, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of interesting. No one was predicting that 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 sort of you know danger was hiding in the Commerce Clause that people would start saying that uh, the actual you know. Uh, 
local interstate activities like growing something in your backyard is in federal jurisdiction. Right. Uh, but that's eventually what happened, and that's why the states have very little power and very little rights anymore. Now, did this process of the federal government taking power away from the states and the states getting a lot less power, did that start happening shortly after the ratification, or did we have a 150 years of pretty good sailing in there, and then in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, we, we've we've started losing a lot more liberty? Was it incremental yeah. and gradual, or did it did it happen in in our lifetimes here? Well, well, don't forget that the biggest issue of the original of the first hundred years of the federal of the United States was slavery. And so it did not happen. It did not happen quickly. But there's a reason it didn't happen quickly. I mean, I, I think it, it. We didn't have modern progressives, and we didn't have a lot of these two people who want to expand government. You know, they were all classical liberals generally. But the idea that the federal government would have power over the internal sort of you know policies of the states uh, was not going to happen because that meant that maybe the federal government would have power over slavery and slavery policies. So for, until they sort of put that aside, they were never going to – no one was ever going to promote a vision of the federal government that had much control inside the states. And, and so that didn't really start getting discussed until the 1880s and the 1890s when you started having discussions about uh, sort of, you know – Trusts and labor policy, and you started. You saw the creation of the Interstate Commerce Commission, mm-hmm. which is one of the first big affirmative things that the Congress did using its commerce power. Uh, and that, and so, so from that moment, in about fifty years, when we get to the New Deal, by the time the New Deal is over, all of that has been pretty much destroyed. But I, but again, I think a lot of that is because of slavery. We did. They just had other things to talk about and other concerns until they had the war and, and Reconstruction was over. I see. And now, you know, in, in recent years, uh, uh, there, there have been pundits out there talking about getting states to sign on to uh, have a new constitutional convention. And since uh, President-elect Trump uh, has been elected, we're starting to hear that more on the progressive side. The Democrats are saying, wow, we need a new constitutional convention to get away from the electoral college and and make some other changes that's always kind of scared me on both sides really because i think the constitution is a really good document i don't think it's perfect but i don't think man is capable of creating a perfect document uh you know as long as there's more than one of us uh here but how do you see the future uh if you can as far as a constitutional convention how do you feel about that and Will that create a new anti-federalist group? Yeah, I, I, I think that a constitutional convention would be absolutely crazy for for anyone, especially anyone who believes in limited government. We, 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 we are lucky enough to have a constitution that is indubitably a classical liberal constitution, and we would never, ever get anything like that. Even, even though they ignore what the words say a lot, there's a lot of things that they don't ignore, and they still have to go through some motions that are important uh, in order to protect our liberties. Mm-hmm. But if we wrote a constitution now, I mean, if, basically, if you look at any constitution that's been written, in the last, say, 50 years, uh, they're not really 
print statements of principle and statements of how the government is organized. There are huge books of statutes, and mm-hmm. you see uh, you see this in state constitutions. The further the further you go west, meaning like the meaning that the generally speaking the newer the state is, the more their constitutions resemble something like the European Union Constitution. Right. So Massachusetts still uses the John Adams written. Massachusetts Constitution from 1780. I'm from Colorado. Our Constitution is hundreds of pages long. Uh, and so, generally speaking, no, a constitutional convention is a crazy idea. But amendments, there are amendments that we could do that could that could help out. Uh, there's a Federalist Amendment that could suppose every now and then that would allow states to overturn an act of Congress uh, with either two-thirds or three-fourths. Things like that, I think we can start talking about. Now, that being said, we have seen I don't know, the last two or three, maybe four or five administrations get bolder and bolder on executive orders, on memos, on instructing um, government agencies to come out with essentially their own regulations and and bypass Congress. I mean, President Obama this year is going to have 90,000 pages added to the federal registry and stuff. Can we fix that? Can we... Get rid of some of that. It seems like every fix that comes out of Washington is, you know, 50,000 pages and and it it makes things worse. I mean, what what do we do to fix this? Yeah, it's I agree. It's a little bit dire, it seems, but nothing, nothing is impossible. Uh, We can what we can do. There's some pretty good legislation out there that can start eating away. There's a thing called the RAINS Act uh, that it, it could be passed, actually, by Congress. It's a rainy, raining in the administrative state with allowing further levels of congressional review. And actually, to be honest, it, with the Supreme Court, we have a chance to, to win, to overturn some doctors that have allowed for the administrative state to run rampant in recent years. And, and I think that there are five justices on the court willing to do this. Uh, it's becoming a... a sort of bipartisan agreement uh, problem with the administrative state. And so I, I wouldn't want to amend the, uh, amend the Constitution or have a constitutional convention. I'd want to amend the Constitution to reign in the administrative state. But before we do that, I would I would look at these laws and court cases we can win that actually can do a lot. But yes, it's pretty bad. There, there, there are millions of pages in the Federal Register. And as you said, they get the thousands get added every year. You know, I, I, I've re- reminded my audience several times when I was in college, I took an Old Testament studies course, and being 18, you know, I was the smartest guy on campus, and, and I asked my professor at the time, were were these uh, prophets in the Old Testament really as smart as we think they were, or are we over-reading what they wrote? And I got a 20-minute dress down in front of everybody how these people were a lot smarter than I was, and I'm reminded <laughs> of that with our founding fathers. These guys were pretty sharp. They were well-read. They understood things, and they could look forward. And they didn't really have the ego and the power motivation that, that politicians have today. They were pretty smart at putting all this together, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think that so the ego-power thing is an interesting question. I mean, they were very concerned. Uh, so many things in the Constitution are about checking ego and checking power. Mm-hmm. They're very concerned with this. But uh, the there was an idea that 
you know, you didn't you didn't run for office, for example. That was very very gauche. You had to stand for office. So you, the uh-huh. idea of political campaigning was didn't even exist. So the idea of that kind of thing. But when you're putting together a state, yes, they had all thought about statecraft. And right now, many people on the left are thinking about how to organize a government as an abstract rule because they fear Trump. And so right. you start asking yourself questions. If you, if you don't play the partisan game, if you're, if you're kind of doing this crazy thing the way our country was founded to have a bunch of really smart people sit in a room in Philadelphia for a whole summer and discuss fundamental principles of constructing a government, you say, well, you know, do you think they should be able to give themselves pay raises you know, without an election in between? No, well, of course not. That's a bad idea. You know, we can all agree on that. Yeah. And then, it's, of course, as soon as they went and populated the government, they became partisan extremely quickly quickly and started hating each other. But when you get some people in a room and you're you're building something new, some of those partisan things go away and you just ask for yourself, what are the good principles that a government should be organized around? And I always tell people, you know, people who are really afraid of Trump and say, look, Obama created half of these dangerous powers uh, that he's going to inherit. And you championed that. And that's just that's just hypocrisy and bad government. I've, I've opposed all of these things Obama has done, even things that I agreed with, but I thought was beyond his power. Because I, I, I always say every time you endorse a government power, imagine it in the hands of your worst enemy. Right. And if you're OK with that, uh, then go ahead and endorse the power. <laughs> you know, and that's a perfect way of looking at it, because it, it, the chairs do change. Eventually, you know, so uh, we've been speaking with Trevor Burris. He's a research fellow at Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies, managing editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He's also the co-host of Free Thoughts, a weekly podcast you can find at libertarianism.org. Trevor, real quick, I got about 30 seconds. Uh, Did the Cato Institute take its name from uh, the pseudonym of one of the anti-federalists? Uh, no, no, no. That, that, that's a good question. Now, there was a there was a different pseudonym of some people who wrote letters in the 1720s who used the name Cato. They're called Cato's Letters. Oh, uh, but okay. one of the best anti-federalists is Cato. That is true. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, you know, if we have a constitutional convention and I start seeing some writings and they're signed Brutus, I'll think of you. So, oh, well, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate your time tonight. You and your colleagues do great work. I've talked to a lot of people over to Cato and really appreciate all you do. So thank, thank you so you. much for your time tonight and uh, look forward to chatting with you again soon. Yeah, have a good one. Next, we'll talk about the 75th anniversary of the day that will live in infamy, the attack on Pearl Harbor. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Last Wednesday was the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And that was before most of our time. I had uncles in World War II. My dad was barely a teenager, so uh, he did not serve. But I did have uncles that serve. All of them came home. Uh, I didn't lose any family in World War II, but that's not the case for many. At the end of the show tonight... Uh, my producer, Katie, found a little audio and montage of some of the survivors of Pearl Harbor, and we're going to end the show with that. You know, there, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from 
Pearl Harbor from anything, any battle, any war, looking backwards. I mean, prior to Pearl Harbor, we weren't really involved in World War II. And there are some out there that say that that was all a planned thing to suck us into World War II. They wanted America in World War II. And, you know, World War II was extraordinarily devastating for this country. We lost tens of thousands of our soldiers, tremendous, tremendous economic cost. But it was a different time back then. And there's tons and tons of stories of professional athletes uh, signing up, uh, actors uh, signing up to do their their cause. I mean, Jimmy Stewart joined the service in World War II. Uh, I mean, it, it's just, just fascinating. It made me sit back and say, what if Pearl Harbor happened today? What if it happened today? What would America do? What would our leadership do? And as all of you are aware, we helped bring the end of the war by dropping a couple of nuclear weapons. And nuclear weapons are something that no president wants to authorize the use of ever, ever, ever again. Our tribute to the greatest generation. The night of December 6th was just like any other night. We had no, no inkling. Nobody, nobody I know ever thought there'd be an air attack on Hawaii. We thought that was a haven. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. We looked up and we saw this flood of aircraft coming in from the north. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. I was just a young kid, you know. Planes were diving from every angle. That sound grew louder and louder. I knew we were at war. They were trying to bomb us and machine gun us. We had nine torpedoes into us and two bombs, and there was oil and their fire was burning all around me. Get to your battle station on the double. This is the real thing. This is no drill. That's quite a shocker for a 20-year-old brat. Anybody said they weren't scared, they're a liar. We're all scared, but you didn't have time to think about it. They were concentrating on the big ships. Bam, there went the Arizona. All of a sudden, you had a job to do, so everybody grew up. I was a 17-year-old naive sailor boy, but I was trying to be the very best military man that I could be. And I'm from a proud family, and I damn well know that if I'm going to lose my life, I would want my family and my country to know that I died fighting. Freedom is not free. There's a price to be paid. Many of my shipmates paid that price. Let's remember Pearl Harbor. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country.
The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 